Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Had to get that mic on. I forgot. I, I need somebody standing right by that door to remind me just as I come in <laughs> and then remind me of everything else all, all along the day. Uh, great to see you all. Great to see those of you who are online as well. Welcome uh, to our service. We are starting today a brand new series uh, called Meeting Jesus. It's on Matthew 8 through 10. Uh, we're going to slow down a little bit through this one. We're going to take 10 weeks working our way through those two chapters. And uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we are doing series within Matthew, and we'll do a series of series of series of series going through the uh, whole book of Matthew. And sometimes we'll interrupt those series with other series as, as well. Um, but I want you to think about something for a moment. Think about someone that at some point in your life you met this person, and when you met that person, it changed the trajectory of your life. Uh, I don't remember for sure when was the first moment I saw my wife, Lois. Fortunately, she doesn't remember either. Uh, when I tell her what my idea is, she goes, I don't think so because, and I go, no, I think it was because, you know, so we're, we're, we're not sure, but I think it was, I think I saw her for the first time serving breakfast up at Northwestern uh, in college, and, um, and she was serving breakfast, at, that was her job there at the school, and I noticed something about her. And uh, I, she's going to hate me for telling you all. Maybe I won't say this next service because she'll be in here. <laughs> but the thing I, I noticed about her and really that never it stood out to me before, like in a person, was her nose. <laughs> it was odd. I, you know, it went with the face, of course, but her nose stood out to me. And, uh, and little did I know uh, that I would marry uh, the girl with the, what I consider to be a cute nose. Now, please don't look at her nose. You know, <laughs> or go, what's so special about that nose? Or, or whatever. Um, you never know when you're going to have a life-changing encounter. It can happen. And it doesn't have to be that big. It can be uh, an encounter that leads to a new job. When you kind of trace things back, you go, oh, it all started with this encounter. A move in your life. Uh, it could be an you know, the first encounter with a person that you're going to develop a, f a deep friendship with that you didn't even know one moment before, or somebody that introduces you to a new hobby that becomes something really fun in your life that you really enjoy, or somebody that, that maybe because you're with them, you start leading a healthier lifestyle because of the things that you do together and their influence on your life. There's all kinds of encounters like that, meeting someone that you don't know the moment you meet them, but as that relationship develops, it actually changes the course of your life. And so this series is about meeting Jesus, and when we come face to face with Jesus and we grow to know him, we, we experience a profound shift that alters the course of our lives. And that's the big, big idea behind this whole series. And most of you may not I don't mean to say most of you have met Jesus and it's changed the course of your life. But sometimes we don't really think back and look at our lives. Sometimes we're, we're kind of forced to do it. If you do one of the radical mentoring things, for example, you've got to kind of tell your story, uh, for example, in there for your group. 
and you start seeing how profoundly different your life is because of this relationship with Jesus. And it's something good to reflect on. Some of you may look back and you may say, actually, it doesn't seem to have made much change in my life, in which case you may need to ask the question, do I know really about Jesus, but I don't really personally know Jesus? One of my hopes is that through this series, uh, if that's the case for you, that you will come to know Jesus. Maybe even today that you'll come to know Jesus personally. But that every single one of us, as we reflect on the profound change that Jesus makes on our lives, that, that it will impact your life in a profound way. Meeting Jesus is a transformative encounter that redirects us in a new and exciting direction. That's the big idea of this series. And that's what Matthew is communicating very specifically by the way that he tells the stories that he tells about Jesus in Matthew 8 and 9. Uh, so go back a few weeks ago, we looked at the Bible Project kind of poster. They kind of talked through the whole book and I just uh, did a, a little portion of that where he covers, where they cover chapters 8 through 10. <clears throat> Chapter 10 is uh, one of the five collections of sayings of Jesus, kind of mirroring the five books of Moses. Uh, but in chapters 8 and 9, you have nine encounters. And in between the first and the second and the second and third, you have some sayings about Jesus where he's talking to people about following him and what it means to follow him. So it's very deliberate. There's no doubt it's very deliberate. Three encounters follow me, three encounters follow me, and three encounters. And that's why we're calling this series what we're, we're calling it, what we're call, why we're calling it that. Now, what we see in those encounters is Jesus is healing people. And he's exercising demons from people. Half, half, fully half of the miracles recorded by Matthew are recorded in these two chapters. Now, think about it. When I saw this in my research, man, it kind of blew me away because this is a 28-chapter book. And half of the miracles are recorded that Matthew is going to tell us about are recorded here. And the reality is if you look at Matthew, if you look at Mark and Luke, many of the same stories come in a little bit of a different order or in different places. And what it shows you is that Matthew, as we've been talking about, he's not just a historian and biographer. He is a theologian. He's, a, he's got a pastoral mind as he brings it to scripture. And he's arranging things because he has a message that he wants to give. It's a very, very important message. So in the two sections where Matthew recounts Jesus calling others, the, those two sections right there where, where, where it talks about Jesus doing that, Jesus not only calls, he expects people to follow. He expects obedience to him. Jesus called the discipleship it's not a call to just an optional way of life. Let me just show you another way that you could possibly live your life. Following Jesus is the only way to be transformed and to live in the realm where God, if we could have the next slide, where God is king, where he is ruling and reigning. And so we come today to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we're going to look at the first four verses where he heals a man who is suffering with leprosy. Um, this man is an outcast from the community, from society. But when he meets Jesus, it transforms his life. And we're going to look at this story at two different, kind of two different layers. 
It's not, there's not a hidden layer here. It's right on the surface. But you have to look at it not only for just the visceral sense of it, which we're going to look at, really just an important story in that sense, but also where it fits in the story of God. And when you unfold kind of that layer of where it fits in the story of God, it gets this like profound meaning uh, for all of our lives. So please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. I think it's page 972 in our Bibles, the ones in the seat rack in front of you. And we're using the NIV, uh, the New International Version. While you're turning the Bibles, I want to remind you that understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery. It tells us the story of God. It tells us and shows us what our part is in that story. And I just want to remind you again in this series that this is a great series to invite people in your life that you're praying for, that are far from God, that don't know God personally, but maybe have shown some interest and are seeking. It'd be a great, great series to invite them to. And maybe, maybe you're here. Maybe you've been invited by someone. So let's pray, ask God the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word for us. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may meet Jesus, be transformed by him, and follow him wherever he leads for the sake of your glory and your worldwide mission. All right, let's follow along as a couple of our five ochres read us the passage. Matthew 8, 1 through 4. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. All right, so really to get at the meaning of the story, you really have to see the unusual way this man asks for healing. And it's really there that it kind of unlocks the story for us. Um, two different parts to this. That, uh, that deeper layer that we're going to look at in that other layer as well. But look at verse 2 again where it says, A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, now listen to what he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. All right, so we'll, we're going to focus here just for a few moments on the if you are willing. What he's basically saying is, are you willing to help somebody like me? Are you willing to help somebody like me? He clearly believes that Jesus is able to do it. But he is wondering if Jesus is willing to do it, whether he would help someone like him in particular. And really he's wondering if Jesus would even give him the time of day. Now you need to understand a little bit about what's going on here to understand why he would think that way, why Jesus maybe would heal other people but not heal him. Um, there's a reason why he might think that way. Leprosy was a condition that made you unclean, specifically ritually unclean. We're going to unpack the ritual word there, but it made, made it so that you really couldn't go into the synagogue and worship, and you couldn't go into um, the temple and worship, and, um, and you really couldn't be around other people because your uncleanness would be contagious. But we'll go into that in a few moments. Now, the term for leprosy, actually, 
doesn't apply to just one disease. In the Bible, it applies to several skin, condi skin conditions that made you ritually unclean. And so in Leviticus 13, in the Old Testament law, it's addressing, before the passage we're going to look at, it's addressing the specific kinds of skin conditions, skin diseases that make you ritually unclean. And, um, and here's, here's what it says. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. All right, now, a lot of these diseases would pass, and some would not. Some of them stuck with them for life. Now, the problem is contact with others. It makes others, then, ritually unclean. They are contagious in that sense. So if you come in contact with a person who has leprosy, you have to quarantine for a certain number of days. All right, now, we're familiar with quarantine. <laughs> but our conditions for quarantine are cushy, really, compared to when you had to quarantine in that day and age. You, you didn't have the, the privacy from every, I mean, it was, it was much more complex. You couldn't work. It was disruptive in a major way. No Zoom, no working from home, uh, none of that uh, sort, of, sort of thing. This isn't about germs. They didn't know about germs. All right, just think about historically. They didn't know about germs. And you say, well, God knew, and that's why he made, well, there were a bunch of other things in the law that had nothing to do with germs that were just like this, that would make you unclean. All right, so it's not really the argument here. It's, it's a different kind of argument to understand what's going on. So this man is wondering if Jesus will heal him, and Jesus is willing to heal him. He even touches him, which you don't do with people who are ritually uh, unclean. And he heals him, and then he restores the man to society. That's what he's done. It's not just a healing. He's restored the man to society. He's restored him to be able to return to his family, to worship again in the synagogue, to be able to live in the town again, in a house. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. It's a profoundly beautiful story just based on those facts alone. Talk about meeting Jesus and having a transformative experience that changes the whole trajectory of your life. And the reality is that maybe you've asked that question sometimes. Maybe you're asking right now, would Jesus help someone like me? And unfortunately, you may have the idea that Jesus may not be willing because some, maybe a church, church people have communicated to you that whole idea in one way or another and left you either feeling just a whole boatload of shame, or just unwanted or unwelcome uh, around Christians or in a church. Now, I see this happen a lot of times to very committed Christians who go out and mess up in a huge way <laughs> publicly and stay in that mess for a long time, eventually come back to their senses, and when they come back to their senses and come back to walking with Christ, they go, I don't think I can go back to my church. And they change churches where they can be a little bit more anonymous and build from scratch. And it's understandable why people would do that, but there's something wrong with that picture. There's something sad uh, about that 
about that picture. Jesus specializes in helping people who feel unhelpable or unforgivable or unworthy of help. So all of that is beautiful. And there's also more to the story. Uh, we see the cover your mouth, all of that is being germs. They, they have no knowledge of germs. <laughs> um, it's something much more profound than that. Um, there is a profound transformation that Matthew is highlighting. It might be the reason why this is the first story that's given in this series of nine stories. Um, there's a word in the story that takes us deeper and that shows us what this other layer is, and it's that word that we've seen and talked about already, clean. Um, in a sense, that word clean is like a portal uh, into so much more uh, of what is meant here. If you understand that word, uh, a whole new world of meaning opens up and emerges from the story. It's a meaning that would not have been lost on the first readers. It's a meaning that definitely would not have been lost in the people who were first there watching this take place. So this man has a skin disease that doesn't, um, uh, does, this man with the skin disease doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. He doesn't say, will you heal him? He says, will you make me clean? Why? Because he is, as we've talked about, ritually unclean. So we need to take a, a deep dive into what that means. It leads us to what is arguably the most important word in the Bible used to describe God himself, and that word is holy. Cleanness is related to holiness. So there's so much packed in here, we're gonna watch a couple of portions of a Bible project video on holiness and try to unpack that as quickly as possible. So uh, let's watch that right now. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. 
and Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, this the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. All right. We're going to stop right there. Just review some of the concepts there real quickly. Holiness is a word that describes how powerfully perfect and utterly unique God is. Proximity to God is dangerous because he is so good and we're not. Holiness speaks to moral purity and ritual purity, but they're not the same thing. People would not have looked at the man with leprosy. They may have in a derivative way, but they wouldn't have said he is sinning by having this disease, all right? They, that's not how they looked at it. They may have thought, as people incorrectly think all the time, you know, so-and-so is suffering because God has done that to them because they've done something bad, okay? So um, ritual purity is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death. So in Leviticus, it talks about three different categories, diseased skin, dead bodies, certain bodily fluids. Again, if you make this about health, this one doesn't make sense at all. All right, doesn't make any sense at all if you try to put a scientific explanation for why these things make you impure. Becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful under the law. What's sinful, as I said there, under the law is to just come on in before God, ritually impure. That's the problem, not that the impurity, if you had to handle dead bodies, it would make you ritually impure, but you weren't doing anything wrong. It wasn't a sinful thing. You just had to quarantine for a while. Okay, so the man with the skin disease isn't, mure, isn't morally impure because of his skin. He is ritually impure. And you've got to understand this to be, really be able to get to what's happening uh, in, this, in this story. Let's continue with another portion. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. 
your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus, but instead Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness. All right. That's all we're going to watch of the video. You can, there's a resource section in the sermon application guide. You can look at it, um, and, you know, when you go home. So, um, the concept of ritual purity is one of those kind of concepts that when you first read in the Bible, you go, huh, that's dumb. That's crazy. That's weird. And it's really easy for that to happen when you are not only traversing into a different culture, but thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, it's different. It's not weird. It's different. It's different than our weirdness. We are just as weird. We have just as many things just like that. So say, okay, prove it. So imagine that you buy a new car or an immaculate used car. Okay. It's in great shape. You drive it to the store, you go into the store, and when you come out, there is a deep dent in the driver's side door. <laughs> okay. Now the, the paint hasn't been impacted, so you don't have to worry about rust. The integrity of the door hasn't been impacted. Why are you so upset? Why would it upset you? Now, you can say, well, did somebody was so thoughtless? What, why was that thoughtless? What difference does it make? Try to explain logically why that dent should be like in that moment, the end of the world, you know. <laughs> Try to explain that why you're going to apply insurance to it or get it fixed and spend hundreds of dollars to take out, logically try to explain it. You can't explain it logically. It's now you look at the car and you see it as, to use the old term, unclean. It's blemished. It's blemished. It's, it's not whole. It's, it's tarnished in some way. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be made whole again. Now, it's not that different in ancient Israel. They had things 
that like the dent in the car, or let's talk about a stain on a wedding dress right before you go to the altar. <laughs> a big stain that can't be covered. Um, or, or think of a prominent scratch, not a crack, a prominent scratch on the screen of your brand new phone. You dropped it as you were leaving the store where you just bought it. Why is that the end of the world? <laughs> it doesn't impact anything, okay? So remember, um, they had these kinds of things, and it has nothing to do, again, with germs or anything like that or spreading diseases. Some, some things that we wouldn't think twice about were blemishes to them, were dents, were stains to them. So when it comes to ritual purity, God used their cultural sensibilities and sensitivities to communicate important truths. Um, so the concept of moral purity, it's a different but related category, is a little easier to explain in certain contexts. The reality is it's getting harder and harder in our cultural moment to explain moral impurity um, to just anybody. But I'm gonna give it a try. So I want, I want you to imagine that you work for the nicest and best boss that you have ever had. Nothing but kindness toward you and toward everybody else on her staff team. And not just kindness, she's made you all into a great team. Uh, everybody on that team, because of the success that you're having as a team, everybody's stars are rising within that organization. And, and, and everybody is noticing because you guys are so successful. But here's the thing, she's, she's really awkward. Sometimes she gets her words jumbled up to the point where some people may misunderstand. You give her time and you see, oh, okay, now, now I see. And you, you might be offended at first, but then you realize, no, 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 she didn't mean it that way. But one day you're at lunch and you're with some of your team members and you're talking about her and you're laughing about her, not in an endearing way, like, oh, you know, you're, you're being derisive of her. And you laugh about how she dressed to the last meeting and then you start talking about one of her kids who shows up at work every once in a while and how irritating that kid is. And one of your fellow workers on the team all of a sudden goes, and in the table adjoining yours with her back to you is the boss within hearing distance of everything that's been said. And now everybody's been quiet at your table and that causes her to, to kind of turn around and look and the look on her face makes it really clear that she heard everything that was being said. And it's not anger, it's pain, it's, it's hurt, she's deeply hurt. She sees the look on your faces, <laughs> you know, and she laughs off what you said. She just makes a joke about it because very obviously she doesn't want you feeling bad. That's the kind of person she is. She doesn't want you feeling bad. So she tries to, to lower the temperature and make you feel okay about this horrible thing that you've just done. It would be appropriate in that kind of situation to shrink back in horror and use the modern equivalent of Isaiah. I have unclean lips and I work among a people of unclean lips. 
Isaiah, Isaiah sees all the ugliness and the horror of his sin. Why? Because he's in contrast to the glory and purity of God. So he can see the stain, not, not outward ritual stain. He sees the moral stain in his life. He's not only ritually unclean, he is morally unclean. He's crying out, I'm stained by sin, and I live with people who are stained by sin, dented by sin. I'm standing in the holiest place, a place where I don't even belong. I'm not a high priest. I've not gone through anything. I've just, I'm in the wrong place. I'm looking at absolute perfection. I am ruined. <laughs> That's his expression. But God doesn't destroy him. And God isn't concerned with Isaiah contaminating the temple or contaminating him. That's been the concern. You have to understand, in the Bible story, that's been the concern up to this point. You take the whole Bible story up to the point of Isaiah, that's been the concern. Is don't walk unclean into a holy space. You will contaminate it. Don't do that. But now we see God cleanse Isaiah, not based on anything that Isaiah has done, but as an act of pure grace, unmerited. He's made him clean. At this point in the story of God, we have this huge turning point in this biblical theme of holiness and purity. In Isaiah and Ezekiel's visions, cleanness and holiness become contagious. That's just a huge development in the story. And, and the meaning of this doesn't become evident as the video made the point until Jesus starts touching ritually unclean people. Before he heals them, he touches them. People whose skin make them unclean. People whose bodily discharges make them unclean. People who are dead that he touches. He touches them and makes them clean. His cleanness and purity are what's contagious. Do you see how important this is? And just how utterly fantastic. Instead of unclean people getting clean before they can approach Jesus, Jesus, who is, in Matthew's words, if I could have the next screen, please. Emmanuel, only Matthew tells us, God with us. Jesus approaches the unclean and makes them clean by his touch. How is it? How does that happen? In the Isaiah vision, how is it that a coal makes Isaiah clean? You have to ask that question. Because the video asked that question, how? how? Ah, we don't know at that point in the story. How would that be? You can say, well, it's just God magic, right? It's God, you can do that, right? Just, you just, you're clean, right? The only problem with that is he would be violating his own character because he is a just God. He has said over and over again, I'm a just God and I'm not going to look the other way when evil is done. Evil to people, evil to my creation. I'm not just gonna look the other way. So is God violating, you know, in these stories? Is he violating his own character by doing that? He's not violating because the whole story, the whole story of God, the Isaiah, the Ezekiel, everything before, all those laws of cleanness and 
impurity and purity and all of that, all those laws, all of that, even Jesus at this point in the story, Matthew 8, it's all pointing, Jesus tells us it's all pointing to the moment when he's going to go to the cross. The whole story has been about this. It's been about him going to the cross. It's about him rising from the dead, he says, and it's about the worldwide mission to tell other people about what has happened. That's what he says himself is what this whole story is about. What happens? Jesus goes to the cross and he becomes the sacrifice for the sin of the world. He becomes the lamb, takes away the sin of the world. He dies in our place. That's when we celebrate communion. This is for you. He is dying in your place. And we receive what he has done by putting our faith in him. We don't earn it. We don't make ourselves. We can't make ourselves clean. We receive what he has done for us by putting our faith in him and his grace, by his grace, what he has done on the cross. Our sins go to him. His cleanness, his righteousness, his holiness comes to us. You can receive. If you have not received Christ, by putting your faith in him, you can receive him by putting your faith in him and following him. Asking him to be your God and your savior, your Lord, your leader, your forgiver of your life. So as we begin our time of response, let's take the bread and the cup and let's remember what Jesus has done for us. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you make us clean. We thank you that you're willing to make us clean. We thank you that there's no, no sin that you can't forgive. There's no way we mess up that we can't come back to you and confess it and repent and you won't forgive us if we put our faith in Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone here today or watching online who has not received Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, met him and begun to follow him, to be transformed by him. I pray, Father, that they would make that decision today. We just thank you. And pray that we would walk in gratitude, just incredible thanksgiving, joy, delight, and worship you with everything that we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.